to bring you the word this evening. And uh, to that end, uh, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles uh, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is going to be our sermon text for this evening. And we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 4, just verses 1 through 4. So we'll read uh, Colossians 2, 1 through 4. I'll say a brief word of prayer and then we'll get into uh, the message. So Colossians chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of God, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you have brought us here this evening, that we might hear the reading and the preaching of your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would take the truth of your word and plant it deep within our hearts, that you would water it with the outpouring of your spirit, and that you would produce much fruit in our lives, not only for our edification and for the upbuilding of your church, but ultimately for the glorification of you, our triune God. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are, uh, some 504 years later, after uh, a little Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther went to the castle door at Wittenberg and and posted a number of theses that he wanted to debate uh, with church officials over the nature of church indulgences. Indulgences were something that you could potentially purchase uh, so that Long story short, uh, you could either get somebody out of purgatory or you could even perhaps minimize your own time out of purgatory. Luther thought that these were abuses of uh, the teaching of the church, and so he posted his 95 Theses, and at least in church history lore, the Reformation was off and running. Well, the details are often a bit more complicated than that, as it is often the case with life. And that sure, we can say that Luther posting those 95 theses was perhaps the first event that got the Reformation rolling, but there were a number of other events scattered throughout Western Europe that added fuel to the fire. And one such event occurred in 1522, in the Lenten feast. Now, what is the Lenten feast? Well, it's the 40 days just before the celebration of Easter where Roman Catholics were of the practice that they would uh, fast from eating meat. And the reason that they fasted for 40 days from eating meat was to, in a sense, relive Christ's own fasting in the wilderness where he himself refrained from eating any food. And so the church essentially had proclaimed that this is a fast for the next 40 days where you are not to consume any meat. Well, one of the early reformers by the name of Holdreig Zwingli and his friends were working with his publisher, uh, Christoph Froschenauer, as they were working late into the night 
uh, because Froschauer had so many books that he had to publish that he was just way behind. And so you can imagine, if we were to find ourselves under similar circumstances, you might say, well, you know what? The office is staying late. Let me go ahead and spring for some pizzas, or let me spring for some sandwiches or whatever, and bring them on in. And so, in good German fashion, Christoph Froschauer said, it's late, let's feed the staff, let's eat bread and sausage. That's right, sausage. And so that little event, you wouldn't think anything of it, but that little event soon became known as the affair of the sausages. Yes, that's right. Uh, it was a scandalous thing. You wouldn't think of it. You're just kind of like, hey, come on, some sausage, some bread. In fact, as I think about it, as it was probably 16th century bread, it was kind of like really good sausage and really good bread. You think, what's wrong with that? That seems like a reasonable thing to do except it scandalized the local community because there was an outcry, how dare you break the Lenten fast? The church has decreed that we are all supposed to be fasting. We are not supposed to eat meat. And so Zwingli, though he himself did not consume any of the sausage, he nevertheless defended his friends. And he wrote a little treatise called Regarding the Choice and Freedom of Foods. And he says, if you want to fast, do so. If you do not want to eat meat, don't eat it, but allow Christians a free choice. He says it should be up to the individual Christian to decide whether or not he or she wants to fast, whether or not he or she wants to eat meat. Now, however well-intended his idea was, or the idea of fasting for Lent was, Zwingli objected because he essentially said the church has no right to bind the conscience of the Christian and to go beyond the teaching of Scripture. He says Christians are free to fast or not to fast because the Bible does not prohibit the eating of meat during Lent. In other words, he said, we have the scriptures, God has given us his law, and there is nothing in the scriptures that, either, that, that prohibits us from consuming meat, let alone from celebrating Lent. And so Christians should be free to be able to do as their conscience leads, whether it's to consume meat or whether it's not to consume meat, whether it's to fast or to not fast. Now, in more technical terms, what Zwingli is articulating is he's articulating what is known as the doctrine of Christian liberty, that where uh, God has bound the conscience, we are morally obligated to follow the word of God. But where the word of God is silent, we are free to do as conscience leads. In this case, you could have been free if you were with Christoph Froschauer to eat the, the sausage or to not eat the sausage. And so we want to first understand what the doctrine of Christian liberty is. And it's especially noteworthy, and I tell this to my students, is that when we're celebrating the Reformation, one of the things that we often talk about is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And our own Westminster Confession of Faith has an entire chapter devoted to that doctrine, chapter 11. But it also has an entire chapter devoted to Christian liberty, which in one sense 
is connected to the doctrine of justification. But then there's a second, there's a second point that Zwingli was ultimately uh, pursuing here. It's not only the doctrine of Christian liberty, but it was also in a sense what we could say is the reformation of wisdom. The reformation of wisdom. In other words, imagine you are living in a culture and in a time when more or less you did everything that the church told you to do. There were no committees. There, no, there were no meetings. There were no women's groups or men's groups. There were no church sessions. What there were, was is it was the church dictating uh, through the Pope and through the cardinals and through the bishops and through the local priests, this is what you're supposed to do. And all of a sudden, with the reformers saying, hey, there's a whole degree of, of freedom and latitude here, it called for Christians to seek wisdom afresh, to seek to live their lives through the wisdom of Christ rather than through a lot of extra-biblical rules that the church had laid down. So what we want to do is we want to first give thought to what the Reformation teaches when it comes to the doctrine of Christian liberty, and second, then we want to give thought to what this idea that Zwingli essentially was pushing, which is the Reformation of wisdom. So first, let's, let's think about Christian liberty. As I said, what is Christian liberty? We can further define this as, as by saying that God alone is God, and he alone has the right to impose laws and commandments upon us. You know, one of the things that I regularly tell my family, and especially my children, is I say that, you know, this is a line that my dad would tell me. If I tell you to jump, I want you to jump. And on the way up, I want you to ask how high. And he was conveying the idea that... I'm in charge. I'm Lord of the manor. I'm the boss. You follow my instructions. Well, this is the way that God is with his creation and with us, his people. He's the only one who is allowed to give us commands. When he created human beings, he imposed the law upon Adam and Eve, and he told them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he made his covenant with Israel, he imposed his laws upon them and he gave to them and ultimately to us, the people of God, the Ten Commandments. Now, as sinners, whether in Adam or individually, we have all broken God's law. Romans 3.23, for all, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ, through the gospel, frees us from the curse and the penalty of the law. He's freed us from the guilt of sin. He's freed us from his wrath. He has freed us from the, the curse of the law, which all of this means that he has freed us from evil in the world. He has freed us from bondage to Satan. And he has freed us from the dominion of sin. This means that when it comes to the law and it comes to the curse of the law, we are utterly and totally free from it. You know, think, for example, is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or as Paul waxes eloquently later on in the 8th chapter in verses 33 and 34 when he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
In other words, he's silenced the law's loud thunder. He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame as the, as the hymn goes, which means there is nobody who can bring a single charge against us. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus as the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? And so what all of this means is this means, as the Westminster Confession says in chapter 20, paragraph 2, God alone is Lord of the conscience. And he has left it free from the doctrines and the commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if matters of faith or worship. You see, if God is the only one that can give commands and is the ones who have broken his commands, he has freed us from the curse of the law, then that means that we are free from the curse of the law. We have to obey the law as a rule, as a guide for the Christian life. But it's God alone who is able to give us the commands. Nobody else in this creation can add to God's commands. Nobody can tell us that we have to follow certain rules such as you have to uh, cease from eating meat during Lent. You can't eat meat on Fridays, for example. This is the type of rule or law that Zwingli and his, his, his fellow reformers broke. And in fact, the Westminster Confession says that so to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. If we are morally bound to the law of God and he has freed us from its curse, then for us to take ourselves and to put us ourselves under another law or under somebody else's authority who therefore goes and adds extra laws and commandments for us to somehow improve our sanctification, to somehow supposedly draw us closer to God, is to bind our consciences to somebody who is less than God. It is to give our allegiance and ultimately our faith to one who does not deserve it. It's to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith. And it even says, and it's an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy the liberty of conscience. So it's so important to recognize what the gospel gives us. The gospel gives us a freedom from the curse of the law. The gospel gives us a freedom from people within the church making laws and rules that we supposedly have to follow in order to improve our sanctification. In my own denomination, one of the things I can recall a number of years ago, uh, right around the time of Y2K, was that uh, uh, one of the presbyteries was requiring all of the members of their churches uh, to take survival training courses. They, 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 you know, they, they were of the impression and under, uh, under the idea that, uh, that you know, the whole bottom was going to fall out of the culture as soon as the clock ticked to January 1st at the strike of midnight 2000 because the whole system was just going to go up. I can remember my dad going on New Year's Eve because, uh, to the grocery store and, uh, and, and he just wanted to get some, I think it was some Diet Coke. 
and so because my mom was out of Diet Coke, but he happened to find uh, pork rinds that were on sale, and, and he loved pork rinds, and so he filled up his shopping cart with pork rinds. And so there, there were all these people in line with water and, and toilet paper and food supplies. And then, you know, they're, they're looking over at my dad, you know, and he was just like, hey, just getting ready. <laughs> you know? uh, he, he had a good laugh out of that. But for a presbytery or for a church for that matter to say, you are required to obey this mandate and you have to follow this rule and go through this training was to exceed the authority that God had given them as ministers of the gospel by making extra biblical rules for people within the church. This is what the Roman Catholic Church was doing. And when this was appealed to the General Assembly, the General Assembly said, yeah, no, you've exceeded your ministerial authority. You've exceeded the authorization that the Word of God gives you because there's nothing in the Word of God that says thou shalt take survival training. There's nothing in the Word of God for that matter that says thou shalt not eat sausages whenever you want to. It was John Calvin who said, we are bound by no obligation before God respecting external things which in themselves are indifferent. In other words, we're not talking about the explicit commands of Scripture. In other words, if God says, thou shalt not kill, well, then we have an obligation. We cannot kill. If it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, then it, that means we should not commit adultery. But if the church says, thou shalt not eat meat on Fridays, or thou shalt not eat meat during Lent, you know, you want to start flipping through the pages of the scriptures and say, well, where does it say that? You know, or thou shalt wear red socks on Tuesday. Okay, well, where, where, where does it say that? This is one of the key differences that the reformers pushed in terms of their doctrine is that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching what they called was magisterial authority. In other words, you have to obey what we say because we have the authority and the power. Whereas the reformers said, no, 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 we don't have magisterial authority. We have ministerial authority. In other words, we can only bind the conscience insofar as the word of God binds the conscience. So as a minister of the gospel, I can bind all of our consciences because the word of God says, thou shalt not steal. And my proclamation of that word is binding upon us all, not because of myself, but because that's the authoritative teaching of the word of God. I cannot say, Thou shalt not go to McDonald's. I mean, McDonald's is kind of disgusting, but okay, if you go there, I'm not going to look down upon you. But I have no authority to say thou shalt not go to McDonald's. That's beyond the authority that the Word of God gives me. That would be an extra biblical command that I have no authority to give. Now, can you imagine going from a culture and in a world where virtually so much of your life was dictated by the commands of the church. And now, all of a sudden, you have ministers of the gospel saying, you're free to do as you see fit. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do if, if the church doesn't tell us what to do? Should we fast? Should we not fast? 
Should we eat sausage or should we not? I mean, for me, it would be a relatively simple thing. Oh, yeah, we should, we should do this. this. This tastes good. This smells good. No question. Well, this is why the Reformation, in terms of the doctrine of Christian liberty, our conscience is free from the extra-biblical commandments of, of the church. It required the Reformation of wisdom. The reformation of wisdom, which brings us to our second point. And that while we must always, of course, follow God's law as a rule, that is, a guide for the Christian life, what the reformers were saying is that we desperately need the wisdom of Christ to navigate the many challenging twists and turns that we have in the Christian life. Think, for example, of baseball. I know it's perhaps it's fall, you know, World Series is going on right now. But I want you to think of baseball. When it comes to baseball, I could give you, let's say you've never seen the game played, you don't know how it goes, and I say, okay, here's the rule book. And you go and you dutifully study all of the rules of baseball so that you know that when a batter is up and he you know, hits the ball, the infield can't play on it, and he can run to first base and he can go there and stay on first base safely. You can learn all of the rules of the game. You can learn all of the laws of baseball. You can know them perfectly. But while you may know all of the rules of the game, if I were to ask you, when is it the best time to steal second? Well, you would look up in the rule book and you say, well, I'm allowed to steal bases, but it doesn't tell me when. Should I steal third? Should I steal home? The rules tell you that you're allowed to bunt, but not when you should bunt. You know, I don't follow baseball all that closely now, but uh, in my younger years, I used to follow it a lot more closely, especially when I lived in Atlanta. And I can remember watching the Braves in the postseason. And, and as, as somebody who didn't know as much about baseball, it used to drive me nuts when the coach would see that the opposing team would switch hitters and put in a lefty. And so then all of a sudden, you would see the game stop, the coach wanders out to the mound and, you know, calls for another pitcher, and a different-handed pitcher would come out. Now, to this day, I'm still not sure as to why this goes on, other, other than to say that a left-handed uh, batter uh, might have a harder time hitting off of a left-handed pitcher, and vice versa. But when are you supposed to pull those out? Sometimes the coach would put a different pitcher in, sometimes he wouldn't. How do you know? Should you pull a pitcher or not? Well, he's got the bases loaded. Should we leave him in there, or should we pull him and get in the relief pitcher? That's the nature of the Christian life. We can know the rules all we want, but so often the rules, the law, doesn't tell us what we should do in certain circumstances. I think the, the, the prime example of the necessity of the wisdom of God in the Christian life comes to us in that powerful illustration from Solomon with the two women who are arguing over the one child. Do you remember that? Do you remember that narrative? Two women each had newborn children. 
And one woman in the middle of the night accidentally smothered her child because she rolled over onto the child in the middle of the night and the child died. She awoke and found that her child was dead. And so rather than acknowledge the fact that her child had died, she she surreptitiously took her dead child, swapped it out with the live child of her friend that was nearby her, and then she said, this is my child. Now, the, 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 the child's mother was not fooled by this, and so she and the other woman went before King Solomon. They took their dispute before the court. Think of the illustration of baseball and the rules and when to do certain things and then think of Solomon. Solomon knew the law. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not steal. Moreover, according to Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Solomon knows the law. But where in the scriptures, where in the law do you turn for two women fighting over one child. There isn't one. There isn't a law for it. So what do you do? How are you supposed to uncover who the true mother is? Well, Solomon had to use wisdom. And of course, that memorable verdict that he delivered, bring me a sword and divide the child in two. He was using wisdom. And arguably, I think you could say that he exhibited what Christ says in Matthew 10, 16. He was shrewd as a serpent, but yet as innocent as a dove. He knew what he was going to do. He knew that in threatening the child's life, that it would reveal the true mother. And the true mother said, no, don't harm the child. Whereas the other woman was indifferent to the child's well-being. And Solomon said, Now we know who the true parent is, who the true mother of the child is. This is wisdom. And this is ultimately what the Reformation was calling for. It was calling for a renewed quest for the wisdom of God in Christ. You know, Calvin, for example, in the opening lines of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the chief fundamental pillar books, if you will, of the Reformation, he says, wisdom consists of two things. He says, our wisdom, insofar it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. In terms of our knowledge of God, we we have to know who God is, both as God and lawgiver and the only Lord of our conscience. Conversely, we have to have a knowledge of ourselves and we have to know that we don't have the right to impose any kind of ideas that, however well-intended they might be, upon others in the church. But what the reformers said is that we don't just seek the wisdom of God by rashly trying to peer into the inner workings of the divine mind, trying to scale the heights of heaven, trying to peer into the heavenly holy of holies. What does Paul say in our text? He says there in Colossians 2, 2 and following, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
You know, moments ago, we confessed that we believe that salvation is in Christ alone. And so what the reformers were essentially promoting is the idea that not only is salvation in Christ alone, but wisdom, all of the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. Calvin says we are perfect in wisdom if we truly know Christ so that it is madness to wish to know anything besides him. You see, in the absence of clear commands in Scripture, we have to seek the mind of Christ. You know, so often it's the case within the church as a whole, we often try to think that if we can just have the perfect checklist, you know, it works for pilots, you know, okay, you know, it's often the case that if, you, if, you, if there's a problem on an airplane, it's because somebody missed a box on the checklist. You know, think, however, though, how would that work? How would your marriage work if you, you decided to go with a checklist for marriage? Maybe it would be helpful. Maybe, you know. Do you know your anniversary date? Okay, check, got that. Um, let's see, do you have an anniversary gift? Okay, yep, check, got that. Have you given the gift to your spouse? Yep, check, got that. All right, and so then you go to your spouse. Here you go, wife, anniversary gift, check. I'm out, I gotta go. What is this for? Well, it's for our anniversary. I just gotta make sure and check the box. We're good, right? Did I miss something? Am I supposed to say something else? You know, did I miss it? Oh, oh wait a minute. Oh, uh, yeah, love you. <laughs> it wouldn't work so well, would it? It wouldn't work so well. That's why checklists for the Christian life don't work so well either. It's one thing to say, hey, as you're living the Christian life, you know, make sure that you're hitting these points. But this isn't what the scriptures teach. There's not a checklist that the scriptures give us, but rather the Christian life is about seeking a relationship with God in Christ and seeking the mind of Christ. It's not about a list of rules, so to speak. You know, it's not don't drink, don't smoke or chew or run around with the girls that do. It's not all about that. It's about getting to know what, who and what Christ is. It's like one of the things that Martin Luther said in a famous disputation that he conducted is he said, our theology is nothing but the cross. Crux sola est nostra theologia. The cross alone is our theology. He says, he deserves to be called a theologian who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through the suffering of the cross. It's in the cross of Christ that we see the wisdom of God manifest and revealed. And so the reformers, such as Luther and Calvin, were simply echoing upon this theme as they stripped the church of its unauthorized use of power and they placed it into the hands of the individual Christian to say, the Lord is alone, the Lord of the conscience, but you have to seek the wisdom of God in Christ in order to live the Christian life. And this is the very thrust, for example, of Philippians chapter 2. 
You know, as, as Paul includes this hymn, it was an early church hymn that was sung to Christ when he says in Philippians 2, 5, have this mind, here it is, here's the mind of Christ, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of a cro- on the cross. What Paul is saying is if you want to have the mind of Christ, you have to draw near to him. You have to pursue him. You have to recognize that it is only through your union with Christ that he can give you his mind so that as you face the circumstances in life, you'll have the mind of Christ to know what to do. I think this is often the challenge when it comes, say, for example, to parenting. Should our children have a knowledge of God's law? Absolutely, unquestionably, yes. You know, they should be able to rattle off the Ten Commandments. But the Christian life is more than that. You know, I think so much of the proficiency in the Christian life is not just simply checking the box, but rather it's intuition. You know, to say that, that, that Christian wisdom is taught, yes, it can be taught, but it's not only taught as much as it is also caught. That's the nature of the book of Proverbs, where Solomon sits down with his son and he says, let me teach you wisdom, let me teach you about life. Here are all of the varied circumstances that you might face. Sometimes, son, you're going to have to confront the fool in his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And sometimes, son, you're going to have to let the fool go, uh, lest he be wise in his own eyes. It's going to call for wisdom. Sometimes you're going to say yes I'm going to partake of the sausages. I'm going to eat because Christ has given me freedom to do so. But when it comes time maybe to exercising your Christian liberty, say, for example, with the use of the consumption of alcohol, and you have somebody that's there in your midst that struggles with alcoholism, you might have to say, oh, Lord, give me the mind of Christ. And even though I have the freedom to consume this because there is no prohibition against the consumption of alcohol in the Scriptures... I want to sacrifice my rights for the sake of my brother or sister in Christ. And so that I sacrifice my rights using the wisdom of Christ out of love for my brother or sister. That's the mind of Christ. That's wisdom. And this is ultimately what the reformers were calling for is the reformation of wisdom or the revival, if you will, of wisdom, seeking the mind of Christ. Beloved in Christ, the reformation of wisdom is so much more than just eating sausage, as you can well imagine. It's about Christ alone, the exaltation of God's wisdom in Christ. It's about faith alone and grace alone, seeking salvation and God's wisdom uh, in Christ through faith alone in Him. It's about Scripture alone, recognizing that God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and He has given us His Word by which we can live our lives so that no one can impose extra-scriptural commands upon us. But it's also about the glory of God alone, pursuing God's wisdom in Christ so that we can live wisely, not simply following a checklist, but seeking a genuine relationship with Christ where we draw near unto him and he conforms us to his image. How is it that Moses was transformed and was 
effulgent with the glory of God simply by being in his presence. Such is the nature of learning and growing in the wisdom of Christ. By being in Christ's presence through prayer and the use of the means of grace, Christ will conform us to his image and he will make us wise. It's to the glory of God alone, moreover, as we use this Christ-given wisdom, the mind of Christ, to live sacrificially as we use our Christ-bought freedom, not for selfish ends, but to build Christ's church. I think one of the reasons why we as Christians often struggle with wisdom is because it's like going out on the tightrope without a safety net. Where's the rules? Which way do I turn? And we often steer away from that instead of fleeing to Christ and say, oh Lord, give me the wisdom that I need to make the right decision. Do I take this job or do I turn it down? Do we buy this house or do we stay where we are? Do we send our children to this school or to this school? Do we go to this church or that church? It calls for wisdom. It calls for us to seek the mind of Christ. As much as it might scare us, seeking God's wisdom in Christ is where we will find ourselves on the cutting edge of our sanctification, where God is making us more to be like his son and where we become less reliant upon ourselves and more reliant upon God. Pray, therefore, that God would give you the mind of Christ. Pray that he would give unto you the wisdom of Christ. And give thanks that Zwingli and his band of colleagues had the courage to eat sausage on that day. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we give you thanks that you have freed us from the curse of the law. Not only have you given us freedom from evil, the dominion of sin, and from the bondage of Satan, but you have freed us from the law as a covenant because Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf. At the same time, Father, we pray that as we use the law as a rule, that we recognize that it does not address every circumstance in life. And to that end, O Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom, give us the mind of Christ, that in times where we're unclear as to what path to take, that you would guide us, that we would be on our knees in prayer, that uh, you would... Give us wisdom and insight, O Lord, where it seems as if the path is dark and gray. We also pray, O Lord, that it would be a wisdom that is shaped by the cross of Christ, that we would not selfishly use our Christ-bought freedom for ourselves, but rather we would use it for your glory and ultimately for the edification of your church. In the end, O Lord, bring glory to your name and give us the wisdom and mind of Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.